5, Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our stroll through uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. And as you're turning to Matthew chapter 5, simply listen to these words of Jesus. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Pretty heavy words. Pretty heavy words. Can I turn left and talk? Yes, I can. <laughs> Pretty heavy words to um, begin a, a sermon. The woes to the Pharisees. But I think this is what Jesus was dealing with, and maybe this is, this is the reason that he gives us the words of Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they and only they shall see God. You see, this is an argument against Phariseeism. Uh, Lori and I took uh, took Tracy down for a ride along Fort Myers Beach this week. First time we'd been there since Ian, and we wanted to see it. And some of you have been there, and some of you have not. And if you have not been there, um, four five months after um, Hurricane Ian, it still looks much like a war zone. There are um, shells of homes that. As you look through them, you see the drywall has been removed and you see the, the electrical wires hanging. And you, it's, it's as you have gone back into time and you're looking at a black and white picture rather than a color picture. And as we um, went through there and we saw these buildings that were decimated, some still on top of each other, and and... Uh, shrimp boats that are piled on the land on top of each other that are still there. And we looked at those homes, and, and this week as I was thinking about that and as I was reading Matthew 5, 8, I was reminded of that because as you drive down Fort Myers Beach, every now and then you'll come to a home that has been completely redone. And the grass has been replanted and and the palm trees, new palm trees are there, and it is a beautiful picture, and you get, all of a sudden, you're in a black and white world, and you get a, a, a brilliant picture of color. And as I thought about that, and I thought about the outside beauty of those homes, and I, I thought, you know, how foolish it would be if someone read the outside of those homes and did nothing on the inside of those homes. And they just left those homes as they were inside because we don't want our neighbors to think
think that we don't have enough money to fix up our home, and so let's fix the outside, but let's not worry so much about the inside right now. That is a totally ridiculous concept. Jesus came to earth during the history of Israel when they were living in bondage. In Israel's history, they were often in bondage. Uh, they were not in bondage as though they, as like, like they were in Egypt uh, in change, but they were in bondage to the Roman government. But they were in bondage as well, the people, to something else. They were in bondage to the legalistic, whitewashed, religious leaders the whole point of the Beatitudes in, in Matthew chapter 5 is, as we have talked about, is to describe people who are in the kingdom. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, it's all the same kingdom. It's describing people who are in the kingdom. That was the most important thing for a Jew, especially a Jew living under a government where the emperor is worshipped, but the God of Israel is not worshipped. They were looking for a redeemer. They didn't have the right concept. They were looking for a redeemer to redeem them from a, a physical human government, but they also needed a redeemer to redeem them from a religious system that had become unbearable. A religious system and a kingdom that had become unattainable. It seems clear from the Old Testament uh, what uh, God had in mind when he spoke of religion. In, in Psalm 51, we have a uh, chapter there. It's the chapter of David's repentance. And in Psalm 51, he says this, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me against you and you only have I sinned. And then he goes on and he says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, bones that, that, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And then he says, then he says create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Hosea, in the beginning of the minor prophets, Hosea Chapter 6, verse 6, Hosea writes these words, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, God is not, um, he was not interested in, in what we look like, but who we are. He desires being, not doing. He desires relationship, not religion. But the Pharisees, they had created a religious system that added laws to laws to laws. We think of the law of Moses, the Torah, and, and what comes to mind are the Ten Commandments, but there were 613 laws in the Torah. 
They were interested in, in how far you could walk on a Sabbath. They were interested that you didn't go to McDonald's and order a cheeseburger. And I'm not exaggerating. You, you do not eat a mother with her milk. Cheese is a dairy product. You can't mix those. This is a law that they had to fulfill. In the Mishnah, the, the, oral, um, the oral law of Moses, there were thousands of laws that they had to obey, and these, this created a legalistic system. And legalism creates two things. It creates doubt, and it creates guilt. And so for the Jews, they're asking, am I in the kingdom or am I not in the kingdom? You remember John 3, remember the story of, of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, John 3 says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of Jews. He came to Jesus by night so he wouldn't be seen. He had, he had questions for him. He says, Rabbi, you know, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one does these signs unless, you, unless God is with him. And then it says, Jesus answered him. But there hadn't been a question yet. Nicodemus hadn't even asked the question. And he says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see what? The kingdom of God. Am I in or am I out? You know, many of us know those feelings of, of doubt and we know those um, the feelings of guilt because we grew up that way. We grew up in, in churches that we were to obey a list of rules and it was about what we did, not who we are. It was about what we looked like, not, like, not what we lived like. It was about the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And when the gospel begins with law, it begins with obedience to the law. It leads to guilt because we can't obey it. We can't obey the law and there's a guilt that builds up and that guilt, instead of, instead of leading to repentance, it leads to a struggle. It leads to a struggle to obey. And we fail again and that failure leads to more guilt and the guilt piles up and we get to the point where we say, I can't do it. I can't do this. And what do we do? We begin to compartmentalize our sins. You know, I can obey these sins. These sins I have more trouble with. You know, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. <laughs> but I have pride, and I have jealousy, and I have other sins, and the guilt just piles up, and, and it leads to a, a point where, where we say, I'm done. And you know people who have left the faith because of that. It leads to unbelief. It leads to a hardness of heart. And so Nicodemus is asking, am I in the kingdom? And we ask that same question, are we in and we all create our list, and we compare, we compare our, we need to compare our list, probably. We should all decide which list we're going to live by. But we begin comparing ourselves to each other. Instead of striving toward holiness, we strive for approval. We strive to look good. And Jesus, in Matthew 5, 8, in, in one sentence... He destroys the entire legalistic system of the Jews. 
And he says, blessed are the pure in heart because they, and only they, will see God. Jesus is concerned about the heart, not what we look like to others. He's concerned about who we are, not what we do. He's concerned about the heart. You know, the heart, most of the time uh, in the Bible, heart refers to, to mind. I think it also includes emotions. Emotions are related some, somehow to mind. But when we think of the word heart, I, I think we can simply say the heart is the real you. The heart is, is who you are when, when no one is around. You know, in Christianity, the, the unseen is uh, more important than the seen, isn't it? What we do when we are unseen is more important than what we do when we are, when we are seen. That's why we preach the gospel, the gospel of the cross. It's not a gospel of behavioral change. It is a gospel of an inner life. It's the gospel of authenticity and not hypocrisy. It's the gospel of grace and not law. The gospel is about change at our core being. We could say that the, the, the heart of the problem is that the heart is the problem. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We have proposed, as we've looked at the Beatitudes, that the Beatitudes describe those people who are in the kingdom. We see that in verse 3, verse 10. These are Christ followers. These are disciples of Jesus. These are those who are blessed, those who are happy, those who are enviable, those whose life is flourishing even in the midst of difficulties. You know, we don't teach the prosperity gospel around here, but we could say that these people are spiritually prosperous. They are living a life of flourishing, a life that we should want to live. They are people we should want to be. So the sixth beatitude then tells us that the disciples of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus is a person who is on a journey of being pure in heart. And in Matthew 5, 8, I want us to look at three points, three points to ponder concerning a Christ follower's journey to a pure heart. There's a prerequisite, there's a promise, and there's a process. First of all, the prerequisite. The prerequisite to seeing God is to be pure in heart. So we need to answer the question, what does that mean to be pure in heart? Pure in heart tells us, it's an adjective, isn't it? Tells us what kind of heart we need. Uh, just like um, the first beatitude, poor in spirit tells us what kind of poverty. It is a spiritual poverty as opposed to a physical poverty that, that Jesus is talking about. And purity of heart is a purity of our core as opposed to what? As opposed to a surface purity. 
as opposed to a ceremonial purity, as opposed to a legalistic purity. That's why David cried out, you desire truth in the inward being. That's why David prayed, create in me a clean heart. The idea here is of, is of heart righteousness, not of rule righteousness. And that, that is very consistent with the rest of, of what Jesus is going to say in the Sermon on the Mount. A pure heart, pure, we can define that simply as uh, unsoiled, spotless, uh, clean. All of those give us the idea of, of the word pure. However, there is a, another nuance here that I think is the true idea that Jesus is trying to get to with the idea of pure. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 24. We read Psalm 24 um, for our scripture reading this morning. And I want to look at that psalm for just a, a couple minutes here because I think it really helps us to understand what Jesus is saying. Psalm 24 is a picture of struggle, a struggle of David. And I, I, I believe Pastor Josh took us through this psalm when we were going through the psalms, if I remember correctly. But David is on a pilgrimage. He's on a pilgrimage to one of the annual feasts in, in Jerusalem. And as he's either approaching Jerusalem or perhaps he's even approaching the, the temple ground, there's excitement building. And there are people coming from all around, and there are people selling their wares. And, and this is a time of festival um, in Jerusalem. And he is struck, it seems to me, with the reality of his spiritual bankruptcy as he thinks about what's about to take place. And let's read just the first six verses. Verse 1 begins, The Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. David seems to be reflecting and, be, and becoming overwhelmed as he thinks of, of, of the Lord and all that the Lord has owned and all the Lord has created and all that he has established. And he goes on and, and from that uh, picture of God, he says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And David is thinking, surely not I, not I, the sinner that I am. And in verse 4, he says, he who has, a, has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And he goes on to define what that means. He says, only the one who, to, who has clean hands and a pure heart can enter into this this." festival of worship, can go into the temple, can go into God's presence, can stand in the holy place. And then he defines it in verse 4. What does that mean? What does pure heart mean? He gives two, two ideas here. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Does not live, lift up his soul to what is false. What is that referring to? When do we lift up our soul? We lift up our soul to God in worship. And he says, the one that has pure, is pure in heart does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not lift up his soul to idols. He lifts his soul up only to God. 
Now we think of idols, we think of, of uh, statues and uh, in, in the Eastern Orthodox religion, you think of pictures that are on homes and in all of the, um, all of the Eastern Orthodox believers are called icons. And, and we, we think of that, we think of uh, when the Israelites were, were built the uh, calf and, and there was worship of an idol. We think of those things, but you know, an idol is really anything, anything that competes with God as most important in life. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. Pride, self-centeredness, greed, gluttony, a love of possessions, ultimately anything that replaces God is most important in life. Why? Because ultimately all of those things are rebellion against God. And so there's no wonder that God hates it. So those who are pure in heart do not worship idols. They do not swear deceitfully. What is he talking about? Saying one thing, doing another. Or doing something that I don't want anybody to know about. You say one thing and do another. The word we use is hypocrisy. Pure in heart, those whose life, whether it's, whether it's in church, in a public life, or whether it's, whether it's alone in private, the life is transparent before God and transparent before others. He simply means that our lives are not compartmentalized. That when I am in church, I am the same person in church that I am at home. And when I am at home, I am the same person at home that I am at work or that I am at school. There is no hypocrisy. There, there, there is a consistency. When we talk about pure gold, what do we mean? Pure gold is, is gold that's unmixed. It's not mixed with any other mater materials. It's not diluted. And Jesus is saying that a pure heart is a life that is wholly devoted to God. Whether it's teaching a Bible study hour, as Pastor Josh did this morning, whether it's on the golf course and you just shanked your ball to the right into the water and you're going where no man has gone before. <laughs> whether it's at work, whether it's playing with your kids or your grandkids, whether it's a date with your spouse. Pure in heart is about being, not doing. The question is, who are we? A pure heart like pure gold is, is not mixed. The pure heart is not mixed with moral or spiritual filth. It's purely devoted to God. One Christian philosopher defined purity of heart this way, to will one thing. To will one thing. And what is that one thing? I think it's what uh, Jesus is going to come back to in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, seek the kingdom of God first does not mean first in an order of priority that I seek the kingdom first, and then I seek money, and then I seek happiness. But it's seek the kingdom of God only. That is a pure heart. 
That is what Jesus is talking about, to will one thing, not hypocritical at all. Now, as I say that, aren't you glad that life is a journey? That we are all slowly moving toward that pure heart. Psalm 86, verse 1, uh, is a verse that helps us understand that and, and I think is the cry of our heart. Psalm 86, verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I actually like the New International Version of that better. It says, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Give me an undivided heart. Purity has to do with being, not doing. We live in a culture, however, that puts all of the emphasis on doing. Whenever you meet someone and you, you've, you've learned their name, what is the first thing you ask them? What do you do for a living? Not who are you. you know, maybe our que first question should be, oh, do you love Jesus? <laughs> now we get to who you are. But even our closest relationships tend to drift from who we are to what we do. You know, if you think of a husband and wife who may drift apart, it, it, it may be because it has become what I do instead of who I am in the relationship. That love becomes obedience or love becomes a fulfillment of expectations or a fulfillment of rules. And so to obey the rules means to, to be loved. That if I do everything my wife wants me to do and I do that so that I look good, then, then you know, that is what I do. The definition of love becomes obedience, comes fulfill my list of expectations and I'll love you. Jesus is going to say, love your enemies. So does that mean we obey our enemies? You see, we get our, we get our eyes off of the fact that, that love is joyfully putting the needs of the person ahead of our own at a cost to us. Now, I don't know about you, but I have uh, occasionally get a honey-do list uh, at home. I'm not always great at fulfilling that honey-do list. Um, but maybe we should change our honey-do list to a honey-bee list. You know, I think my wife would much rather that I was kind and loving and compassionate than I took the garbage out. And I do those things because I'm kind, loving, and compassionate. <laughs> but maybe we need to think about a honey-bee list instead of a honey-do list. My wife doesn't want me to do things. She wants me to be. A little bit off subject. <laughs> this blessing is for those with undivided hearts, pure hearts. Do you want to see God more clearly? A divided heart blurs our vision of God. Seeing God is motivation to have a pure heart. Brings us to the promise. 
The promise of seeing God is for the pure in heart. So what does seeing God look like? They shall see God. Literally means not, not they'll get a glimpse of God or they'll see him once, but they will continually see him. That should both frighten us and comfort us. They will see God. Seeing God means you, you have to be in his presence. We're in the context of kingdom here, that God is the king. And being in the presence of the king was not something that happened very often. You had to, you had to have an appointment to be, to be with the king, to see the king. In Exodus chapter uh, 10, verse 28, Moses was in the presence of Pharaoh, and Moses had given Pharaoh a number of plagues, uh, nine up to this point. And at the end of chapter 10, in verse 28, then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for in that day you see my face, you shall die. In other words, don't come into my presence again. The next time you're in my presence, you die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And he was right. Not many people did after that. To see the king, you have to be in the presence of the king. And as with a pure heart, that we don't have a totally pure heart, and, and we are on a journey, we are on the road to a pure heart, so it is with our seeing of God. We do not see God as he is. As a matter of fact, Exodus tells us that, that you cannot see God and live. And Moses saw the glory of God. But 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, Paul writes this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. How do we see God now? Dimly. But we see God through circumstances of life. You can look back over the history of Providence Church and you can see God. Not physically see God, but you can know things about God. You can have a better perception of who God is. Where and I went to the mountains of Georgia and the mountains uh, during the fall, and we sat and we, we watched the mountains. <laughs> and Lori said, who, who can look at this and say there's not a creator? You see God in creation. We see God when we worship together and we sing the songs and we get to know God. We, say, we see God with the, with the eyes of our hearts. But mostly we see God through his word. That's why being the word is so important. If we want to see God, the more we know his word, the more we see God. But seeing God, we should see him with a sense of awe. It should, it should frighten us. You know, Job, we're told that Job saw God. At the end of Job, uh, chapter 42, Job says this, Here I will speak, I will question you, and make it known to me 
He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job didn't see God physically. He saw God by faith. And he says, even when I see you by faith, it is, it is I just fall down in, in ashes and I repent in dust because I'm seeing God. How did God get this perception? Or how did Job get this perception of God? Well, Job um, began to somewhat question um, God. And Job, after uh, he was, after he had lost everything, the last chapters of, of Job, Job gives an appeal in, in chapter 31. He says, I, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty God? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquities? He began to question God. He says, what I'm going to, that's for somebody unrighteous, but I am righteous. And God began to rebuke Job. And in chapter 38, he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I will, ask, I will question you, and you're going to answer me. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have any understanding. Who determined its measure, measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning star stars sang together and all the sons of glory shouted. And he goes on in chapter 40. And he says, does... Uh, dress for action like a man. I'll question you, and you will make it known. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? And God reveals himself to him. And Job comes to the end of that chapter, and he says, I heard of you by the hearing of the, of, of the ear. In other words, I didn't know you fully. But now my eyes see you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and in ashes. Is that how we see God? Job saw him by faith. One day we will see him face to face. Will we fall down in awe and worship him? But you know, there's also a comfort in knowing God. In Psalm 27... Verse 4, David is writing this. He says, one thing I have asked the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in the temple, that I may see him, that I may gaze upon him, that I may have a, a picture of who God is. He goes on in verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not from your, away from your servant in anger. I want to see your 
face because I am comforted there. In Psalm 17, he, he says that. In Psalm 17, the last verse of that psalm says, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. God, I want to see you in your awesomeness and in your grace. And we see by perceiving God and by, by knowing God. But one day we will see him face to face. 1 John 3, verse 2. John writes this, for it would have been better for them never to have known, oh, that not 1 John, not 2 Peter, 1 John 2, uh, 1 John 3, chapter, or verse 2, says this, behold, we are God's children now, and what we will be has, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, why? Because we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. What will that be like? You know, in eternity, there, there are going to be lots of this, but there are first in eternity. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but we will never see Jesus again for the first time. But we will see him for a first time. And what will that be like when we see him as, as, as he is? You know, if you have that hope, of seeing Jesus, John goes on in verse 3 and he says, and everyone who has thus hope, or who thus hopes, in him does what? Purifies himself as he is pure. We strive for purity of heart now. Why? Because our king is pure. We strive for purity of heart now. Why? Because the kingdom is pure. We strive for pure of heart now. Why? Because only those who are pure in heart will see God. An undivided heart. How do we, how do we put this together? A pure heart is a prerequisite to seeing God. Seeing God is motivation to have a pure heart. The more impure your heart is, the less you see God. That's why James says in James chapter 4, verse 8, he says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, not you single-minded, but you double-minded, you who have something else replacing God in your life. And what is that? He tells us in, in verse 4 above, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friendship with the world, idolatry, double-mindedness, not singularly focused on God. Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The process of acquiring a heart is foundational to seeing God. You know, the problem 
is that none of us, in one sense, are pure in heart. There's something called iron pyrite that um, the miners of gold used to talk about. They would talk about pure gold, and then they would talk about iron pyrite, otherwise known as fool's gold. It looks like gold, but on the inside, it's worthless. It's of no value. Pure of heart. How do we get it? It begins by crying out to God for his sovereign work in our lives. Like David cried out, create in me a clean heart, O God. It's the Beatitudes. It's beginning with poor in spirit. I have nothing to bring. I, have, I am in poverty in my spirit. There's nothing I can do to earn my way to God. And that poverty leading us to, leading us to mourning over our sins. That mourning leading us to Repentance. That repentance leading us to being bowed before God in meekness. That meekness leading to a hunger and heart, a hunger to be, to be totally focused on God in our lives, whether we're at home, at work, at play. That leads to mercy. Understanding the mercy of God in our lives, we show mercy to others. And it's almost as if Jesus is bringing us to the pinnacle of our salvation. And he says, be who you are. Be pure in heart. Be totally committed to God, to the plan of God, to the gospel. And when you do that, you turn away from yourself and you, you turn away uh, from the things of the world and you turn to Christ. Titus 2.14. We read that. Well, let me read it for you again. Titus 2.14 says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We pray to God to purify us, to cleanse our hearts, and that by faith, by faith, God grows us in purity. And then we walk the path to a pure heart. We're not perfect people, but we're on a journey. We're on a journey to a pure heart. Are you a person of integrity? Are you a person who hates sin, strives for holiness? Does the thought of seeing God bring both awe and comfort to your life? Or does it bring a sense of dread? Have you been freed from the grip of hypocrisy, of idolatry. If not, like David, cry out to God, turn to Christ, trust God to change you because changed people live changed lives. Blessed are the pure in heart for they and they only will see God. Pure gold, or iron pyrite. William Cowper, we sang one of his hymns this morning. He wrote another hymn, an old hymn. And one line in that hymn, one, one verse says this, the dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol may be, 
Help me tear it from its throne and worship only thee. Pray together with me.